Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Nina Pantic, one of the co-hosts of this show. I'm joined at the USTA National Campus in Lake Nona, Florida by Irina Falcone. Hey guys, how's it going? Our guest for this episode is Brian Baker. Hi, Baron. Hey there, happy to be here. So Brian is a former world number 52. He has been in the fourth round of Wimbledon. He's been part of the Olympics and he's been ranked as high as number 29 in doubles, as well as winning two doubles ATP titles. Brian, tell us a little bit about what you do here at the USTA. Yeah, I took a job uh, as a national coach, a men's national coach in the pro space in February of this year. And basically, I work with a lot of the guys between 150 and maybe 330. Uh, some of it's supplemental where they have their main coaches and, you know, we do some work with them here and we help out with on the road support. And then other guys, it's a little bit more hands on where they don't have their own private coaches. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but uh, I've enjoyed it a lot this year. Everyone kind of knows you as the player, and here you've transitioned to a coach. When did this happen, and uh, how did you how did you get here from, from being a player? I think I always knew I wanted to stay in tennis. I uh, didn't know exactly what it was going to look like, but when I was out for all the years with injuries, I went to Belmont University as a student and as the assistant coach. So I did have you know three to four years of uh, coaching experience, slightly different level, obviously, but uh, knew that I liked it a lot. I liked working with people, like trying to have an impact with uh, with guys and try to share my experiences and knowledge of the game. So I think it just was a natural evolution. Do you think that you enjoy it more than you thought you would once you transitioned into coaching? Yeah, I think it's definitely different than playing. I think anytime you've been a player for a long time, you still kind of get those juices and it's different when you're at a tournament and um, you're still, you know, I think sometimes you're even more nervous when you're watching guys play because you have no control over it. But um, but I definitely have enjoyed it a ton this year. I, I really like the guys at the USTA that I work with all the time and, you know, the players as well because, you know, everybody works so hard and, um, you know, we're just trying to get better each day. Let's go back in time a little bit. When did you start playing tennis? How did you get into it? I started young. Yeah, I started real young. I think uh, two and a half years old, racquetball racket in hand, backyard tennis court. Um, I had an older brother and sister, so I was the baby. Dad played, and, you know, we just, uh, my brother would get me out there all the time. He he liked it more than me growing up, and, you know, I think just our whole family was in tennis. My mom didn't play. Uh, She had bad knees, but, you know, it was kind of just a family thing that we all did, and in the summers, we'd play all the time, and I think we tried to play like two tournaments a month and you know it was just one of those things where it started super early kind of knew I wanted to play tennis uh, for a long time early didn't know you know turning pro until later but it was it was definitely a thing that my whole family did and you know that's just what what I knew growing up was there ever a moment what what was the moment where you were like okay professional tennis is for me I'd say probably 16 17 I won the orange bowl I guess at the end of my 17-year-old year, so I guess that would have been 2002, a long time ago. 
Uh, and that's when I guess I really started thinking about it as far as skipping college before going pro, um, or sorry, going pro before going to college. And so I, I think I knew I was good at a young age. I was always at the top of the age group and got a lot of international experience starting, you know, 12 years old, Les Petites in France, uh, one of the biggest 14 under tournaments in the world. But I guess it, it did take a few more years before it was something that I thought would, you know, be a reality. It's tough because when uh, when I'm doing the research about you for this episode, it's it's hard not to notice all the injuries. So uh, for, correct me if I'm mistaken, but it started around 2007, and you were sidelined for about six years. I uh, started before that, unfortunately. Um, I, you know, as a junior, I was I was healthy, and then. I hurt my, I started having bad luck in 2005. Like I hurt my wrist in Memphis, was out, you know, maybe nine or 10 weeks and then tore my MCL. I was playing Novak first round qualies of Wimbledon. Um, first game kind of hurt myself. And then right at the U S open hurt my hip and I had hip surgery right after the U S open. And that sort of was the catalyst of everything. And I played a few tournaments in 07 just to make sure, you know, I couldn't play and needed more surgeries, but you know, I think I had five or six surgeries over several years and didn't come back until the summer of 2011. I was still able to hit around. I just couldn't serve. My elbow was a big thing. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think that's the first people most most people ask me when I, you know, when I see them. I haven't seen them for a long time. It's not, you know, what's going on. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, how are you feeling? How's your body? And I've just kind of grown accustomed to that. And, you know, I'm still dealing right now, not feeling great with my back. And, you know, I think it's just one of those things where I was blessed with a lot of tennis talent. I didn't really have a great body. Uh, so I always joke that I blame my parents for bad genetics, but they say if I blame them for the bad stuff, I have to give them credit for the good stuff too. I mean, that's a good, that's a good way to summarize it. Honestly, it is, it is tough because I mean, you had back surgery as well. That was your last surgery. Your last match was 2017. So the back surgery, did you plan on coming back from that? Cause you said you're old, but you're 34. I did. I did. I mean, I transitioned to doubles in 2017. I came back after a lot of knee surgeries. Um, I think most people, if they know me at all, remember getting wheeled off the court in Australia in 2013. So I had a lot of knee surgeries in the next coming years. And then I came back 2016 and was able to do amazing stuff like play the Olympics, played all slams again. But I just really couldn't train the way that I needed to train to be in the top 100. And so I kind of phased out to doubles, which I didn't know if I would enjoy it or even want to do it. But had a lot of success early, started really enjoying it. And then, yeah, the injury bug kind of crept up again. And I've had, you know, two more back surgeries after uh, it stopped in 2017. So that's a little bitter taste in my mouth having my last match of one like I really shouldn't. I mean, I really don't know if I should have been on the court that day. I was hurting pretty bad, but um, it's just something that I've, you know, had to deal with. So I think we did discuss this right before the podcast started. You're not officially retired, though. Uh, I still technically have a protected ranking, but I'm very happy at the USTA, and uh, that would that's something that's not really on my mind at all. And in terms of your overall health day-to-day, though, at, are you at a point where you feel comfortable not being in pain, or are there going to be more surgeries? What's the, I guess, future? I hope no more surgeries. I'm still in pain. Uh, still, back's not very good and kind of working through some stuff, but it's different when you're not playing. And instead, I mean, I, I still wish I could do a little bit more, but right now it's just, uh, you know, trying to give the guys my best and have to use my brain a little bit more than my body and, you know, just take care of myself too. In the meantime, better I feel, the better coach I'm going to be. So it's still a work in progress, but I'm hopeful, you know, over time it, it'll get better. With the amount of surgeries and injuries that you've had, 
is your rehab program still very like prevalent today? Do you still do a lot of rehab? I try to. It's it's a little bit tougher when you know your schedule is more kind of. Uh, I guess other people are relying on you instead of you just being able to do it when you want. Uh, but no, it's, it's still pretty prevalent. I mean, I'm still every day doing as much as I can and might not look like much, but, uh, it's, it's definitely something that, you know, I, I put a priority on. What goes through your mind when you hear a player who is never injured, or maybe they've only had one surgery and they're freaking out about one surgery and you're like, dude, I've had like 18 is, do you ever think about not really unlucky stuff? everybody's different. Everybody's going through stuff that maybe you know about, maybe you don't. Um, and everybody has, you know, strengths and weaknesses. So sure. I mean, I, I've definitely in my life played the what if game, uh, just, you know, a lot of the guys that I was same level, same level as or better in juniors and first year or so on tour, just some of their careers. But at the same time, if you try to play that game too often, it's going to drive you insane. And, just you wouldn't want to want to do that too often so I try to stay away from that and for the most part I have Cause it's impossible to think what would have happened had you not gotten injured for the first time in 2005 and hadn't had a six-year lay it's impossible to even imagine right there's no way yeah life's uh, full of twists and turns so you know if one thing didn't happen then maybe something else would have happened uh, but yeah I mean it would have been awesome to see what my career would have been if I could have stayed away from the big injuries I think everybody deals with little stuff all the time it's a long season People know how to take care of their bodies a lot more now with the nutrition and everybody, you know, has a physio with them on the road or at least all the top guys do. So I think that's why you see everybody playing longer and more effectively uh, now. But uh, yeah, like I said before, it would have been really cool to see what would have happened, but I can't. So it's not really worth uh, thinking too hard about it. Did you travel with a physio when you were playing? I didn't. I don't think many people did at all, especially, you know, 18, 19 year old unless you know maybe you were the only person in your country and you had all the resources in the world uh, so we of course did snc and uh, strength and conditioning and you know did a lot of stuff fitness wise but it was not the daily maintenance like table work and just kind of if you got hurt you saw somebody but it wasn't as much trying to keep you from getting hurt yeah people i think tend to forget that just because we go on the court and you have tennis coaches and you have SNC strength and conditioning coaches, like having a physio is very important. You see that with all the top players. I mean, that's just, they have to have it. They have to have it just to get day to day. Well, it doesn't matter how good you are if you're not healthy enough to play. And I've always said a lot of times, or at least in my opinion, being top hundred you know, it's it's such a grind physically on tour that sometimes you don't need to really be a better player. You just need to play more tournaments feeling better. Uh, so, I mean, if you're playing 23, 24, 25 tournaments a year, but you're only playing, you know, 15 feeling halfway decent, where somebody else can play, you know, 19 feeling well, then, you know, that's going to be probably something that's going to put them over the edge. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, everyone. We're here with special guest and national coach Brian Baker talks a little bit about his injury, his pro life, and how he's adapted to the coaching world. Keep listening. I mean, we talked a little bit about 
you coming back and you're not coming back this time. It, it looks like it's done. When you're in these big, long stretches and sidelined, were you always working to, towards the goal of coming back or was there times? I mean, six years is a long time to be sidelined. Even one year feels like forever sometimes. How did you stay motivated? I think it was different each time I was out for an extended period of time. The first time, I think originally, like I thought for sure I was coming back, but then as the surgery started piling up, I think I became more realistic. And even though I was hopeful, and I think in the back of my mind wanted to come back, it was that uh, you know realism set in that maybe it's not going to happen, and you know I'm just going to have to move on with my life. And that's why I went to school and. Uh, you know, I was coaching and doing other things and sure I was hitting, but I wasn't doing stuff that was, you know, thought of as, okay, I'm doing this so I can come back at this time. Uh, and then I think when I got hurt in 2013, after I had already, you know, gotten into the top hundred and gotten to my career high ranking and had done so well, then I think for those couple of years, I knew there was a chance I might not come back, but I think most of the things that I was doing was to try to come back. Uh, so there was a few different times in my career where it was just different mindsets. Do you miss the travel? I'm still traveling a lot. So I uh, can't say that it's uh, much different right now. I mean, I think I traveled about 20 weeks this year starting in March. So it was a, it was a lot. Now it was mostly challengers and then maybe slam qualities and stuff. But uh, travel, it really just depends. Uh, my wife is fortunate enough to be able to travel. She has a flexible schedule and is able to travel with me to some of the tournaments. So that, that makes it a lot easier. But yeah, if you're on the road for several weeks in a row, um, it, it, it can get tough out there. Was your wife a part of some of these struggles and, and uh, layoffs and comebacks and figuring out what to do? Was she a part of all of that? Yeah, she was. We met in 2010, so she got to see a lot of it. I don't think she understood at the beginning. She was like, wait a second, you're going to forego your final year of college to try to go play tennis instead of just graduating and doing out. And so that was like a really tough thing to try to explain and be like, no, like, trust me, I'm, I'm good. If I'm healthy, I can do this and I can always go back and finish up. So she, uh, you know, didn't have any background in tennis. She was a runner track and cross country, ran steeplechase in college. And so she, she understands, you know, training and athletics, but took her a while to kind of understand too, you know, at Wimbledon where it's like, okay, I finished my match and now I'm going to need like four hours to recover. So you should just leave and not make me feel guilty for, you know, staying here for a long time. So we, we got a working uh, relationship well on the road after a few years, but yeah, she's seen me, you know, definitely with the highs and then at my worst and, um, you know, she's been a rock for me and it's been great. You mentioned Wimbledon. So 2012, fourth round Wimbledon, would you say that's your best memory from the from your pro career? It's definitely one of them. Uh, I think it's the only time I've made a second round of a slam and, uh, you know, definitely wouldn't have said I was expecting it going in. I mean, I went through qualies and, you know, to win six matches at any slam is, you know, a pretty, pretty good feat. And, you know, it's just one of those things where I didn't even enjoy, not, I wouldn't say didn't enjoy, but I didn't think I was very good on grass. I hadn't played in grass on for so long and my footing was off and, remember calling home and being like, you know, don't even think about coming over. There's no chance, you know, I'm going to win any matches. And then all of a sudden, I think it was like a day or two before quality started, just something clicked and, you know, got it going. And, you know, sure enough, each round was just able to keep moving on. And, you know, it was a blast. I think it was kind of just one of those things just validated kind of coming back and putting all the sweat and tears into, you know, trying to get my body and my brain back ready for pro tennis and kind of made it all worth it. 
the fact that you called home and told him like don't even bother coming do you think that kind of freed you up to play a little better and freer possibly uh you know i think as most professional athletes uh we we live in the extremes so it's normally never as bad as it seems and it's normally maybe not as good as it seems and i think i was always more of a perfectionist attitude so um, even if it wasn't that bad, I would always think it was. Uh, and, and sure, I mean, it's probably just one of those times where you have a bad day and you just want someone to feel sorry for you, which you probably shouldn't do very often. But, um, you know, I, I didn't really think of it that way, but maybe subconsciously, for sure, it just kind of takes a little bit of pressure off so you can just go out and play. All right, there's another standout memory. Uh, the Olympics 2016, you're one of those really, I want to say heartwarming stories of that year because you kind of snuck in there and you want to match in doubles with Rajiv Ram. What was that experience of playing in Rio? Yeah, I mean, opening ceremonies, it's it's second to none. I mean, that, I don't think that you can even, I can even explain, you know, coming out of the tunnel and, and just going out there and, you know, seeing the crowd and walking out with the, all the U.S. Uh, athletes. You know, it's uh, just thinking about it right now. It's just a really cool memory. And, you know, being able to do it with one of my best friends, Rajiv Ram, and, remember just being like, hey, if I get it close enough to Serena, I'll probably get a little bit of TV time. So just get as close as I can. But no, she was great. And it, you know, in singles, I was up a set and I think I was two points away from the match and, you know, lost a tough one, but was able to come back and, you know, went around the doubles. And even though we still lost a tough three setter the next round, it was more about just the entire experience. I mean, you still are, you know, seeing the same people every week, but it's just different when it's the Olympics. And the only thing that I not, not necessarily regret, but just wish it was different was that I had to leave literally like a day after I lost to go to Cincinnati qualies. And if I could have stayed, I mean, I tried to see as much as I could. I mean, you're always there trying to do the best you can and prepare, but when it's at the Olympics, like there's so many other sports, there's so many other things to see that you want to go do and you just can't do it, that it would have been so cool if, you know, if, like other people's sports, it's, it's, that's kind of the pinnacle. So when they finish, then they're free to do what they want to do for the next week or two. And for us, we don't get to do that. So that was um, probably like the only bitter thing about it. But I tried to fit in as much as I could. I saw Phelps win some gold medals. I saw the basketball team beat Australia. Um, saw men's volleyball, which was really cool. And, you know, it was I saw other things too. But it was it was definitely, you know, lifetime experience. Great. It's not every day that you can say, yeah, I was in the the Olympics, no big deal. I mean, do you ever kind of have to pinch yourself and like look back and wow, I had a hell of a career. Like I was in the Olympics. That's that's not an easy feat. Yeah, no, I mean, for, you know, all the all the lows and all the stuff that I had to deal with, I got to do so many cool things. I mean, I've won a round and singles every Grand Slam, you know, played all the slams, been able to go to the Olympics played all the played master series um so you know it, it definitely are there are pinch yourself moments i don't think when you're actually in the moment you think of it that way but then you know as time goes by and you can kind of look back on it um you see it now i mean i'm paying for it a little bit now body wise but you know i wouldn't have changed uh what i did i think anything in life you take the information that you have at the time and you go for it and then you just have to deal with it afterwards but it's definitely been a, it was a fun ride. I wish I could have had more healthy years, but you know, it, it, it is what it is. And hopefully I can share, you know, the experiences and the, you know, kind of knowledge that I have and the expertise that I have in certain areas uh, with the guys now that I'm coaching. 
they ever look to you for advice when you see them warming up or you see things that they're doing that maybe they should do better to avoid getting injured and you're like, hey, dude, I know exactly what could happen if you don't do this right. I, I think it's it's a bit dark, but I think you're kind of a great example for young players or any player, you know, not that warming up would have saved you from injuries, but that preventing it is so important. Yeah, I think I go both ways. I think I do that where I'm like, I know from experience and then I'm like, obviously, I don't know what I'm doing because of what happened to me. But no, I mean, I, I just try to tell them, you know, just take care of your body and, you know, everything that you do, especially in today's game where it's just so physical, both men's and women's tennis. And then with the men, three out of five at slams, if you're trying to get to the top, I mean, you're going to have to be in kind of a elite mover so everything you do you just have to kind of keep improving the body nutrition you know like we already talked about with physio type stuff so yeah I do try to give them advice and on things that if they aren't good at what they need to get better at and you know I think it helps I think anytime you're a coach as a player you I guess at the beginning you get a little bit more instant respect and then after that you got to earn it and, and keep going but it is nice to at least, um, you know, they know that I've been there and I've done it so that they'll listen maybe a little bit closer. Speaking of coaching and, you know, helping the kids that you work with, what would you say is your coaching style? I think it's evolved a little bit this year. Um, I think I am definitely a little bit more of a player's coach in the sense of, you know, let them figure it out a little bit, kind of step in when I need to, um, but not really try to you know, get all over them, but at the same time setting a, a line that, you know, shouldn't be crossed. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm a little bit more of a cerebral coach, so I try to, you know, I deal, I think, a little bit better with players where I can, you know, sometimes give a little bit more information and they can take what they want and throw away what they don't want. But you, you definitely have to coach everybody differently. So I, I think my style would be, you know, letting them figure it out and then throwing in some, some information. But there's, there's different people where you have to be harder on different people where, you know, you gotta let them figure it out. So it really just depends. But I think at the beginning, definitely a little bit more of a player's coach. Do you have any certain goals uh, or rankings of players you want to work with and tournaments you want to be at in the player box for? Or is it kind of, you're in the USTA program and you sort of get put where you're told? Uh, I think it's somewhere in between. Um, I think that you can't have an ego just because we are in player development. So, you know, I think the goal is to, you know, take a lot of these younger guys and, you know, equip them with the habits that they need to be top players. And then, you know, once they make it and they've made, you know, good money, that then they'll probably decide if they need to hire you know, a more, a team around them that can, that can do more for them. But at the same time, I think anytime you're competitive, you know, you're trying to take the guy as high as he can go. Some guys, you know, there it's more on the one, two year plan. Some guys it's more a two, three year plan. So it, sometimes it's only ranking goals. Sometimes it's a lot of the intangible goals. So it, once again, I know these are kind of wishy-washy answers, but it really just depends on the situation. I think in coaching, like it's very little black and white. You live in the gray all the time. And, you know, I think we just try to get the best out of each guy. If a guy's high limit is 70, then we try to get him to 70. If it's, you know, 110, there's nothing wrong with that. Get him to 110, 200, get him to 200. So we just try to do the best we can with each guy. So you were on court right before you came on this podcast. Who are you working with today? 
Today, I was uh, just on court with Chris Eubanks. He's going to be one of the guys that is in like my little pod next year with uh, Troy Hahn. So we're excited to work with Banks, and I've spent a lot of time with him on the road too this year. His main coach, Chris Hill, will still be you know, a big part of the puzzle, um, but we'll be helping him on the road quite a bit. So I was on court with him for like an hour, just kind of not as much on the court right now. He's doing two gym sessions a day, but just kind of doing a few things that we want to you know, get in his head for the whole preseason and into the early part of next year. And then earlier part of today, uh, spent an hour with Dennis Novikov. So it's uh, – Depending on who's in town, uh, I'm on the court a lot with the pro space guys between like 150 and you know 350. But uh, Chris will be one of the more main guys next year. So if he's in town, we spend a lot of time with him. What are you trying to instill in him for this coming year? I think a lot of it um, will be just kind of believing in himself a little bit more in the tighter moments. He's a guy that has such a big game that a lot of his sets, you know, a lot of tiebreakers, a lot of close sets. This year he didn't do as well as he wanted to in those type of matches and, you know, probably would have had a different taste in his mouth right now if he won a couple of those. But really working on his lower body footwork, kind of understanding, you know, how to get to the net a little bit more right now, Um, you know, serve spots, returns. I mean, there's a lot of things that he can get better at, but he also has so many, you know, skills and, and some stuff that not very many people in the world have. And, you know, if he can... Like I said before, get the confidence and get a few things, you know, 20% better, you know, watch out next year. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey listeners, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest, former world number 52, Brian Baker. He tells us about his best year, 2012, and playing in the Olympic Games in 2016. Keep listening. Do you ever catch yourself with a player, not specifically Chris, thinking if they're complaining or having a bad day, being like, you're healthy you have nothing to complain about get your butt on the court or you catch yourself from from being that kind of uh advisor uh it just you know occasionally i'll try to give someone some perspective because i mean it's different for every person if they haven't dealt with certain things then you know they're not going to think about it that way but i think we we try to you know talk to people before the practice starts and kind of give a clear objective and and what what we're expecting and um like I learned from Jose Agueras this year, uh, spending a week out there in Palm Springs. It's, you know, one thing that I love that he does, it's, it's just more, it's like, we're not going to judge you on, you know, how you're playing or, you know, stuff that you can't control, but we're just going to judge you on your decision-making. And I think if you can put, you know, the kids minds at ease, then, you know, it makes it a little bit easier for them just to free up and, and play tennis. And normally they'll play better too. It becomes a little less emotional that way. Well, it really does. You're only working or really focusing on, you know, am I making good choices? If I have execution errors, I'm not going to judge myself too hard on that. It doesn't mean you have to be happy about it, but that's just not going to be the number one goal right now. I think maybe I struggle. I would have struggled with that a little bit as a player because once again, it was um, a little bit more, like I said, perfectionist. And, you know, I definitely, you know, it was hard on myself, but 
I think if you can kind of clear up the, the head and make it a more singular focus, it, it makes it a lot better. All right, one of, my, one of my last questions here. So I want to preface this by saying being ranked number 52 is, is phenomenal. So this is not the point. But when you look at a career high ranking of a player, it doesn't have to be you, just hypothetical, and you think, is it easier to be like, I reached 52 or 72 and injuries kind of ruined my, my potential? Or is it easier or harder to be like, that's actually my realistic potential? Like injuries ruined my career or my potential was reached and I'm only as good as 103. You know, is there, is, yeah, that's a tough question. I might ask you the same thing, Irina. Uh, I mean. Why would you put me on the spot? Yeah, I know. She I, asked the question. I phrased that smoothly <laughs> enough, but my, I, think, I think you got the point, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I, you hear I guess I wasn't in the I other, was injured, I know? wasn't on the other side. So I don't, I don't know. It was pretty frustrating my way, but might be frustrating too, to know that you've done absolutely everything. And you know, this is just where it is. Um, I think, I mean, obviously David Ferrer, unbelievable career. I mean, was it top three or four career high? Um, but you know, even if he outworked the top three guys or top the big four like he really wasn't going to beat him that often so you know I mean I think once again it just kind of depends on you know how you're wired how you're built and um you know right now I'd say I'd much rather be healthier and just said that uh I would have been 52 uh that way but I mean even in 2013 I think I had like two futures titles to defend from January to end of April and you know, it was 52. So I think I could have gotten a little bit higher. All right. Well, let's end on something a little bit less dark. What are you most looking forward to about 2020? Uh, I think just kind of a new group of guys kind of going to be working with a little bit more next year and just getting a good preseason under our belts. Like last year I came in for just one week and the preseason just as a independent contractor, just to help out before I decided to come full time or before they asked me to come full time. And just being able to we don't get that many long breaks during the year to really dig in and make some bigger changes to guys games so i think that's what i'm looking forward to the most is just being able to get up there and get some film studies in and uh make some changes that hopefully will help them reach their potential next year all right sweet we don't have to ask me that question then we're good <laughs> <laughs> all right well well this has been the tennis.com podcast thanks to everyone for listening i've been nina pantic with Irina falcone thanks for listening you guys and thank you so much brian for taking the time talking with us yeah no problem at all i enjoyed it from the tennis channel podcast network this has been the tennis.com podcast be sure to subscribe to stay caught up we're available on apple podcasts Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page, tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers, Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers, Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.